Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Humans of New York is a photo-slash-storytelling-slash-fundraising project with over 30 million followers on social media. You read narratives about overcoming adversity, personal revelations, or just flat-out great stories. Just that combination alone, the photos and their captions, have been enough to launch Humans of New York into worldwide popularity, but its creator, Brandon Stanton, has taken it one step further. When a subject of his tells a story about a specific need, he shares our GoFundMe page, and it explodes with contributions from Honey fans. On today's show, you'll hear my conversation with Brandon at the Connecticut Forum recently as he talks about his process, overcoming rejection, and this new era of Humans of New York as a philanthropic powerhouse. Stories have power, and by taking somebody's struggle and turning into a story, you give them some of that power. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. With about 30 million followers on social media, Humans of New York is a project that features portraits and interviews of everyday people on the streets of New York City. Its creator, Brandon Stanton, doesn't mind that his photo-slash-storytelling-slash-fundraising project is much more well-known than he is. It's really the people from New York and from all over the world that he photographs and interviews who become famous in their own right. And when Brandon began to turn his posts into fundraisers for his subjects, Humans of New York reached a whole new level. He's featured people like Stephanie Johnson, also known as Tangeray. She's a 78-year-old former burlesque dancer with a whole lot of stories and very little concern about what you think of her. When her medical needs piled up, Brandon published her GoFundMe alongside her story and raised $2.6 million. Later, you'll hear about how they're collaborating on a book that just became a bestseller, and it hasn't even been released yet. So what's Brandon's process for finding people to photograph? How does he compose the captions for each post? And what's it like going from street photographer to philanthropic powerhouse? We talked about all this and more when I sat down with Brandon recently in front of a live audience at the Bushnell in Hartford for a taping of the Connecticut Forum. For the first 30 minutes of the show, he gave a keynote and slideshow presentation. And then while we were talking for the following 60 minutes, some of those photos were projected behind us. Here's how we got started. Oh, Brandon, this is so exciting. I mentioned I have a thousand questions for you. The actual number is 10,000. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a limited time. I will stop talking about how many questions I have. Uh, I want to talk about some necessary ingredients and what makes up this work. One of those ingredients you talked about earlier is about when you were younger, you had this insatiable need to figure out your big purpose in life, right? But then you stopped trying to find it. You just sort of pulled back and followed your instincts with one picture at a time. So I'd like to hear about what you think about purpose in your life and that tension between wanting so desperately to find it and 
letting go in order to find it? Yeah. Oh, I think for me, it was um, a, a patience thing. You know, I just, I wanted it all. That's the, that's the hard thing about being a teenager or being, you know, in your early 20s is that you have all these ideas and all these energies and so little agency, you know, yet you... And you don't have the power that society affords you through positions or things you need to get with resumes or resources. Um, and you don't, also don't have the experience, which is the, you know, the thing that's harder to recognize you know, when you're that age. And you know, I just had such big, I just saw so many big problems in the world and there were so many things that needed to be changed. I didn't want to memorize the dates and the battles and the war of 1812 and trigonometry equations. And it just all seemed to be so anathema to my purpose. Um, but what I didn't realize, uh, once I started doing my homework and once I started getting into my routine and my rhythm and going, you know, I, at the age of, you know, 21, I decided this was when I was living in my grandparents' basement, um, that I was going to read 100 pages a day. And I did that every single day for years. And, you know, what I didn't realize is that I was building up discipline. Um, and that's what I didn't have. I didn't have discipline. I had the dreams and the passions. And I didn't have the discipline to work when I wasn't feeling motivated, to work when I wasn't feeling passionate. And that's what I created when I went back to school and I kind of threw in the towel on all my big dreams. I'm just like, I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do every single day. And when it came time to make Humans of New York, you know, yes, I was so passionate and so driven and I thought it was a beautiful idea, but it got hard and I've been doing it for months and nobody was paying attention and my friends were laughing at me and my parents were begging me to get a job. It was awkward. And like yeah, you really, really start to doubt yourself. And like, that's when you fall back on discipline. You know, every single day for 10 years, I went out and worked. Uh, and, you know, that was through the skills that I, devote, I developed, you know, the skill of discipline. You know, when I stopped having these wild dreams of what I wanted to do and started focusing on the things that I needed to do, um, which gave me the skill set to later do what I wanted to do. Yeah, it's like you wouldn't have necessarily thought, you know, when I grow up, <laughs> I'm yeah. going to do this thing called Humans of New York. Yeah. That's not how it works. And I wonder what you think, considering that, that you can't have this work be so successful without being really good at curiosity. I wonder if you think that's something that you're just wired for, right? Like, is that just the way you are? Or can any of us learn to become more curious or get better at curiosity? That's a great question. Um, you know, for me, I, I, I guess the curiosity might have been inherent. I, I do not know. But the thing that was able to unlock it for me was being able to be present in the, the presence of another person, which is it's very, very difficult. Like this, the distinction between being right here, right now, and listening very intently, as opposed to thinking how you're appearing, how are you looking to this person, what's the thing I'm going to say next, how do I get the group to start paying attention to me, like, the difference between that is, like, very subtle, but very powerful, and it was especially hard to do on the streets of New York, because it was inherently such an awkward interaction. You know, and New Yorkers are trained, too, stranger who's coming up to you, no matter how nice is eventually going to be asking you to sign a petition or give you their credit card number, you know? And so it's like, 
you are battling against years and years and years of ingrained bias and experience that, you know, when somebody comes up with you with a smile on your face. And so, like, to take that interaction and bring it to a place of presence in a very short amount of time, that was, that was where I moved the needle forward. And then it kind of gave a place for my natural curiosity to really get traction because I was really, really listening. I was really, really listening. Um, and so, yeah, it's like that's the one thing that I can point that I, I definitely developed. And I imagine being able to do that, um, you know, would unlock any innate curiosity that that people have. Just being present and like not thinking about yourself. You know, it's like that's when I was listening because I'm an ambitious person. I'm a competitive person. And like, you know, a lot of it was, oh, if I can, I can do this. And then if I can, you know, get this partnership or this person to share my work and this. And you know, there's a lot of like schematics involved in planning and strategy. But like there was something pure about like the moments on the street where I would be sitting in front of a person for an hour and I would just realize at the end of it, I hadn't thought about myself for once, you know, for an entire hour. That's nice. Even if you really like yourself, you're with yourself all the time. Give yourself a break. <laughs> so what I'd like to know is when you are walking around the streets of New York and you see anybody, what is it about someone that lights up your instincts and pulls you towards them? Well, in the beginning, you know, the photos were very colorful at the beginning. If you look at the, so I have three books. Um, and they're all very different. Um, the first one is mainly photography. Those pictures I was scrolling through very quickly. That was like the first era of my work. And then it was kind of colorful, interesting people. Just people that look different. And that's something beautiful that's about New, New York, York City. Yeah. yeah, is that the kind of the cultural bias there is towards self-expression and standing out. Whereas in other places, the cultural bias might be, you know, fit in or, you know. And so you have all these people trying to be different. So it was, you know, the perfect place to do that type of photography. Then afterwards, it became all about the interview. And I had to become less, much less choosy because it became all about time. I needed somebody on the streets of New York City to give me an hour. That is tough. So you're not looking for somebody who's rushing to anything. And in New York City, that is the default. Yes. Um, benches, Central Park, parks, a lot of cigarette smokers on Humans of New York just because <laughs> <laughs> they, ha they happen to be leaning up against the wall. And preferably other kind of smokers, yeah, frankly. Take their time. A lot of those, too. Um, so any, anybody who's in a state of relaxation uh, was kind of my, my sweet spot. But, you know, it's like, it's, it's interesting. You can... You could stop somebody, you know, a woman rushing in Wall Street, um, you know, home after a day of work, and, you know, she'll initially be very brusque, but then she'll start to get interested in the process, and then suddenly she told you that she only had five minutes, and, you know, two hours later, the sun's going down, and then you, you have to go. Um, so, yeah, there's, it's, it was an interesting 10 years. <laughs> you have said before... I'm focusing my lens on people who are modeling energy and behavior that's moving the world in the right direction. How do you describe the right direction? Well, so that was, and I don't mean to step on questions you have later on, Go but for you know, it. that was a, a recent, um, that was kind of a recent pivot in my life. Because, you know, I, I said that there's this, you know, how, how I... When the, the, the entire decision to do Humans of New York was based on that moment where I realized that so much of my energy was going after prestige 
um, which is much more subtle than money. It's like it's easy to identify when you're going after money. And, you know, there were a couple times where I had to do kind of like gut checks on that even when I was creating Humans of New York because the books became bestsellers, I was getting awards, I was getting invited to things, given very lucrative partnership offers, and it became very much a career in addition to this beautiful, passionate thing that I was doing. Uh, and there's a part of my brain that all, that that is just locked into that side. Okay, if I, I take this step and I put this together, then I can do that, I can leverage this and move to that and that, that, that. Um, and it got to the point where I was show running, a, or I was the co-creator of a big television show for Universal Studios that was based on one of my stories. And I was like teaching myself television writing and I'm trying to photograph and I was just, and I had a health scare. I won't go too much into the details of that just because it takes too long and it's boring, but I thought I had a fatal autoimmune disease and I had like a seven year lifespan. And it was like a month or two months before I f it was finally ruled out. Um, and, you know, during that time, you know, I took a lot of long walks and, you know, spent a lot of time with my family. And I was like thinking about all of the awards that I'd gotten, all the best-selling books, like stuff that, if I'm being honest, you know, like in the moment was important to me because it felt like my career was moving forward. And then suddenly, like, the career vanishes. There is no more career, you know? It's just like, it's just like three years till end. It's like very clear, like, and I didn't know how much longer I was going to be able to work. This is a very de debilitating disease. And so it's like everything that was a step on those ladders just seemed comical and farcical and useless. Um, and then the only thing that mattered to me in that moment were the people that I'd helped. At least this refugee isn't in Syria anymore. At least we raise money for this person to go to college. At least it's in those like in that moment, those were the only things that mattered. And so then after I found out I have an autoimmune disease, but not the scary one, I've been trying to calibrate my work and the stories that I choose. It's not random anymore. Um, two things, I try to identify people who need help and tell their stories and then generate help through the audience. Um, and then also people that are helping other people and so that I can tell their story and model their energy and model their methods to the audience. We're going to get to the fundraising part a little bit later, um, but I do want to talk about how you have experienced rejection over and over again and uh, how maybe that has made you better at rejection in any other context, has it? I, it's had to have. Um, you know, it's like the, uh, as you know, humans of New York got big, um, you know, the, the rejection decreased. So I didn't have to deal with it as much as, as it became a thing. Because you would be like, look me up. Recognize. Yeah. Yeah. I, my, my whole spiel, you want to see it? <laughs> hey, excuse me. Um, I was wondering if there's any way that I can take your photograph. Um, I run a website called Humans of New York. And what I do is I photograph 10,000 people around the streets of New York City. And I was just wondering if there's any way that I could take your photograph. Now, do you get people freaking out at this point? I mean, you must have people freaking out at some point. Well, I got 40% of people. Okay. <laughs> no, not, they don't actually freak out. It's more, most people are polite. The only thing that was better than a, or almost as good as a yes, is a polite no. If it was a good energy exchange, like, it was a good energy exchange. The, the energy I, I could, that always, like, mm, stuck on me the most, like, with wet clothes, was that particular New York energy. It's not only in New York, but there's a lot of it in New York of... 
I am too good for you to be speaking to me right now. You know what I mean? Like, uh, who are you? I'm an important person, and you are nobody, and why are you trying to stop me? Did I give you permission to speak to me? Um, that's like, that was the energy that like grated on me the most, but if like, if there was like a, you know, a decent exchange of energy, like, oh, I'm so sorry I'm late, the kids, like, even that was like, you know, energizing. When we talk about how people open up to you, you've said that there's a tension that many people feel when they're beginning to tell you a difficult story. On the one hand, they have this fear of exposure because you have, you know, 20 million, over 20 million people following you on social media. But on the other hand, they feel this tremendous appreciation that they're being heard. I'd like to know what it is you do to make it so they're more likely to lean into the latter feeling and continue opening up. It's the difference, and again, it's just razor thin mm -hmm. uh, and hard earned. It's the difference between a conversation and an interview. An in in interview has a framework, it has a schemata, it, it, it's, and you know, a conversation is just completely improvised and based on presence. And there's, it takes so long to earn because it requires presence. And it's very hard to be present in an uncomfortable situation. That's what I learned first. Like when I first started approaching people, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people over the period of a few months, like I was always experimenting with things to say. Like I remember like I kept going back and forth between portrait and photograph. Like, can I take your portrait uh, or can I take your photograph? Like maybe that would make somebody more likely to say no. Like there's one key to, that will unlock them all. Yeah, I, well I kept trying to change the words. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is I was getting better but it had nothing to do with the words I was changing. And you actually said this before I walked out. Uh, it was, you know, you, you notice when you're on stage, if you're relaxed, it makes the audience relax, which makes you relax. It's like, a, it's a feedback loop. And it's like, that kind of sounded like what was going on on the street. Like if I was relaxed, the person would be relaxed and then we could sink into this rapport very quickly. When we get back. Say your life has been nothing but struggle and you're carrying around this sense of meaningless and pain, like why me? And then somebody comes up to you and they put it into a framework where suddenly it's a thing, it's a story that you and the struggle you went through and the insight you gained from it can suddenly reach out and give somebody else comfort who's going through that same thing. It's validated your struggle. It's given meaning where there's no meaning before. More from my conversation with Humans of New York creator Brandon Stanton at the Connecticut Forum. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're getting to know Brandon Stanton. He's the creator of Humans of New York, a photo and storytelling project that has 30 million followers on social media and raised about $30 million for some of his subjects. When we talked recently at the Connecticut Forum, I asked him a question from an audience member named Maya. Do you ever feel emotional fatigue? Yes. Um, well, so I did a couple series. I did one series where I um, interviewed refugees during the Syrian refugee crisis in Europe. Um, you know, I did that for like two weeks, and all of those stories were just, oof. Spent time in the pediatric cancer ward at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital for two weeks. 
those stories were very, very tough. So when I'm in a series like that, there's, there'll be always a point where I'll kind of have, um, you know, a nice long cry somewhere. Um, but it's like, you know, I think real compassion fatigue um, comes when you're in a, a situation where there's a lot of pain and you feel like you can't impact it or can't alleviate it in any way. And like one beautiful thing about the work is I always feel that it's kind of healing for the person as well. Um, and so I think that process of, of being able to intervene in some way, you know, I think Spielberg did a huge project on Holocaust survivors. Um, and he talked about how, you know, the process of taking somebody's life experience and putting it into a story, it takes like, say your life has been nothing but struggle, nothing but struggle. And you're carrying around this sense of meaningless and pain, like why me? And then somebody comes up to you and they take it out and they put it into a framework where suddenly it's a thing, it's a story that you and the struggle you went through and the insight you gained from it can suddenly reach out and give somebody else comfort who's going through that same thing. It's validated your struggle. It's given meaning where there's no meaning before. And you can do that with people who are refugees, with people whose children have cancer, because suddenly they're reaching out to other people whose children have cancer, or people whose children don't have cancer, and who are suddenly realizing how much they should treasure their children. Stories have power. And by taking somebody's struggle and turning into a story, you give them some of that power. So there's something redemptive and beautiful about it. When you're interviewing somebody uh, from the earlier days, or from now when you're focusing on fundraising, how are you making sure you have all the facts right? Do you have like, a, are you recording them? Are you taking notes? Are you just totally present and you have a great memory? How does it, how does it go? I mean, the, well, first of all, these are first person stories. We don't have all the facts right. None of us have the facts right about our lives. And you know, the, none of us have the facts right. It's all, we're, we're living our own experiences. And so that's, what I try to do with Humans of New York is portray people's experiences as they are lived. So the question is, there's the difference between facts and lies. Like people, people will tell what they know to be the truth, but it might not be factual. You know, that, that falls. So the, the question is more relevant to my process and what I'm able to control is how do I tell when somebody's lying to me? Um, as far as like exaggeration, I, I find, <laughs> First, it's just a forensic interview process. Lies are very generalized. I want to know exactly what the person said. Exactly. What face did they make when they were saying that? Wait, why did they say that? I thought you said they, why did they say this? Because they said that before. Like, boom. Like, I'm, it's very lean forward and there's a lot of follow-up questions. Lies are, are very general because um, normally they're not thought through that deeply to the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth level. So normally lies present as vagueness. And I don't even know their lies, but it's just like, oh, this is too vague. There's no story here. I can't get it. And so I move on. Um, so I think that, and it's kind of self-regulating because you're sharing the story with everyone you know. Everyone you know is going to see that story. And you don't want people in the comments saying, you know, Billy, that didn't happen. Uh, yeah, so... I'm wondering how you feel about being the vessel for these stories that come from people who are so often very different from you. Um, you know, you're sharing stories of people with different genders, different ethnic backgrounds, different financial means, sometimes different physical and mental conditions. 
how do you hold that being that vessel being a cis white dude yeah um and just, just being very different from these people what do you make of all that how do you hold that yeah i mean the only way that i can judge myself is how people see themselves in their story i mean so skipping out i mean right now my next thing is i've got a 192 page book out that is the first person story of a 76 year old african-american burlesque dancer in the 19th okay tangerite um, we'll get there yeah and i mean she could not be more different than me <laughs> you know but like you know we did her audiobook you know uh. And I wrote every single word of this. I interviewed her for 100 hours. And, you know, to watch her start bawling during the climactic monologue of the story, it, that's how I know I got it right. You know what I mean? And it's like every single, it, it's, it's in giving them agency. You know, it's like, I always say, you don't have to answer any questions. They have final approval. If they don't want their story up, they don't have to have it up. Anybody can take it down anytime. So, I mean, I can't help being a white male. Um, the only thing I can do is attempt to give away as much of the privilege and agency and power that I have just through those safeguards, which I try to do. Yeah. Uh, I definitely want to, yeah. We've got to talk about fundraising. Uh, one of two things happen when I talk about you and Humans of New York. Either I go, you know, Humans of New York? You don't even know, need to articulate it. You know Humans of New York? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they go, what's that? <laughs> and I explained it about how you started and about how you, you started doing captions and that just started exploding and how cool it is. that It's really the, the stories of these people and the photography. And, and then part of the story that I tell people who aren't familiar is, but then... That's cool, but then, in the last couple of years, he's turned this into a philanthropic powerhouse, right? You have raised close to or around $30 million uh, for people. <laughs> this week, you posted about John Conyers and his debate club coach, Deco. <laughs> So I was sitting in my living room, and I, I'm watching the stories come. And uh, the GoFundMe is released in the final frame. It took a little over an hour to blow past the $300,000 goal. As of uh, four days later, at 8.43 PM, you're at $1,282,130. Will you back me up to the moment you knew your work could do more than tell stories? Hmm. We, there were some fundraisers early on. Um, only when, like, I saw, like, a very kind of specific need. Like, there was a, in Pac I went to Pakistan. That's something, I, I've done this in 40 countries now through different, through interpreters. Uh, and I was in Pakistan, and I met a woman who was trying to help get people out of modern day slavery. And she was an amazing woman. Um, so there was like some very obvious times there. And so it became apparent that the audience, um, you know, was willing to give in certain, certain situations. I was always afraid of exhausting them. Mm -hmm. um, and it's still kind of a fear I have. Uh, I mean, 
of that 30 million, like 15 million has been raised in the past 18 months, ever since I got sick, you know, um, that's when I really started kind of every single story. And what I will do now is, you know, the, instead, the, the work has evolved. It went from, you know, these very kind of long captions that each, each person was like a block of text to now I will spend about a month on each story. I only post about once or twice a month now, and each story will be about 12 or 13 chapters, and they'll get posted over the course of an entire day. Um, we connect with people through our struggles and through our pain, and if you can portray somebody's story in a clear enough terms for that person, the audience can imagine what it's like to be that person over the course of a day, and then that person has a need um, there's a huge amount of energy to release and almost it's 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 I view it as like a new type of art form where the you know the traditional climax of an arc of a story is there's the arc and then there's the resolution and there's a climax within the frame of the story. What I've started experimenting with is creating the arc but then having it hang there and allowing the audience to create the, the climax and the resolution so the audience can come in and actually finish the story and actually be a part of the story. Um, and so that's what I've been doing with these GoFundMe's where, you know, Deco um, was a debate teacher um, in Brooklyn and it was told through the, the viewpoint of one of her students, John, who his parents were crack addicted and he was just completely wayward and he walks into this classroom and forms a very special relationship with Deco um, who she transitioned um, and became a transgender male um, during his debate. Um, the beautiful thing, the story, that just happened, but the story's not about that, it's about their relationship. And then at the end, I won't tell the entire story, but at the end, um, we were raising money for Deco to start debate programs all over Brooklyn to start his own organization um where he seeded that and that's what the audience kind of stepped in and there's just been that's been kind of the formula um that i've been following for the past several stories and I, like i said i'm always afraid that the um, the audience is going to run out of money um but it doesn't happen uh it's just like i i i just think that yeah, I think that's the beautiful thing about Humans of New York is that I always joke it's the nicest 20 million people on the internet because it's like self-selecting. Like the, peop right. the people who choose to sit around and read about the stories of other people who are, are the people who care about other people. And so when you do something for 12 years and you build a, a type of an audience around this work being published every single day, what's left? Who's still around at the end of those 12 years for people who really, really care about other people? And there's a lot of energy in there, um, which is why, you know, I'm able to do such amazing things with it. I want to get to our friend whose name starts with T. <laughs> and ends with anger a <laughs> will you god this is what we need in a whole nother hour um will you please talk about what you think it is besides her unique story that sets her apart from any other human of new york okay um just to orient those of you who um don't know about tangeray 
Uh, this was in 2016, and interestingly, I wasn't working. Um, I always like used the camera as kind of a framework to have all these conversations with random strangers on the streets of New York City. I was at the gym running on the treadmill, and it was a cold day, and I was coming back, and I was sweaty, but it wasn't that far of a walk back to my place, so I didn't put on a jacket or anything. I was just walking quickly back to my place, and I see this woman, and she had this amazing jacket on or wear coat, whatever it is. And I was just like, I was walking by. I was like, hey, you look great. Um, and she said, let me ask you something. And she called me over. She said, why is it white boys that always wear shorts in the winter? <laughs> and I, I started to like answer her and then she just launched on this monologue about how this street used to be have hookers up and down it and she she made rhinestone g-strings for the hookers that would light up in the flat in the headlights like Christmas trees and and they were all coming to her and in the 1970s she was the biggest burlesque dancer that was ever and then she I mean, she was just going on and on and on and on. And I'm just sitting there. I'm drenched. I'm freezing. And, but I'm like, these stories are getting wilder and wilder and wilder. And so I said, look, just stay here for a second. Uh, so I ran home, got my camera, took a photo, wrote down this, everything this woman said. And I posted her that night. And it was like the internet exploded. There were three posts. And like everybody just was insane about this woman. Uh, and so me and her started meeting up um, at the diner near our house every single day. And the plan was that we were going to, original plan was we were going to write a podcast of her life. So I interviewed her for like 100 hours. This is like 20 times longer than I'd ever spent with anybody else. And we were going to make a podcast together. Then she got, she fell in her apartment and she was on the ground for like three days. I know, and I was in the mountains. I, I was talking with her every single day, and I was in the mountains, and I didn't have reception. And, like, she always left me, like, 100 voicemails. She still does. Um, and I, I, came, I came out from the mountains. I didn't have any voicemails from her. And so I sent her neighbor over to her apartment. She was on the ground. She'd, like, broken her hip really badly. Um, and so we were working on this podcast together, and we said, like, okay, I, there's no time for that. So what I did is I chopped up her story into 33 chapters um, and posted them on Instagram over the course of a week. And I was like, nobody's gonna read this. It's just too long for social media. It was the most wildly read thing that I have ever read or ever written. Like, uh, it's million, millions of people read every single word of it, and she became a sensation, and we raised $2.4 million for her during it. Uh, she got hip surgery from one of the best hip surgeons in the country. Um, she's got a full-time health attendant now, and me and her are collaborating on a book, which is currently number one on Amazon, might I say. And it's uh, not even out <laughs> until July 12th. It's coming out on July 12th. So uh, <laughs> here at the Connecticut Forum, we're going to continue that trend. Yeah. We can pre-order now. Um, so yeah, so that is Tangeray, who has just massively changed my life, and I'm, I, like I said, we're thick as thieves now. Um, I know when we says, were you're a hustler like me. You're a hustler like me. That's what she keeps saying. <laughs> when we were warming up, we were just getting comfortable on the stage before you got here. Uh, she kept calling. <laughs> just he puts the phone up, Tangeray. Oh. <laughs> After the break. 
Actually, as like time went on, I started to kind of gravitate less towards the people who were self-expressive, and I took more pride in finding the quiet, unassuming person and pulling out the singular story from them. The quiet interviews were, you know, were some of my favorites. More from the creator of Humans of New York, Brandon Stanton, at the Connecticut Forum. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. I'm in a New York state of mind. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. You've been hearing my conversation with Brandon Stanton at the Connecticut Forum recently. He's the creator of Humans of New York, a photo project and set of books featuring pictures and stories from the people he comes across on the streets of New York City. He's raised almost $30 million for some of those subjects. Let's get back to our conversation. I wonder if you could go back to Brandon at like 21 and uh, maybe show him that New York Magazine cover. And the, the title of it was Brandon Stanton's Empire of Empathy, How Humans of New York Became a One-Man Philanthropy Machine. What would Brandon at 21 say You got any weed? <laughs> That's fair. Can, can I have you came back all you came back in time and you didn't bring any weed? How's the weed in twenty twenty two? Um yeah, I mean Yeah, I mean the the big irony of my life is that I flunked out of college thinking that I was supposed to do something really impactful in the world and then gave up on that and through going the absolute opposite direction, you know, and trying to be practical, kind of backed in and lucked into this position. The reason it was such an amazing ride is that because I didn't have the power to imagine what it was. Like if I was growing up today, I'd be like, oh, having a website, you know, where you have 30 million followers is something that's possible. That's something that you can do. It became possible in real time because I was doing it. And it was insane. It was insane. It was like, I'm so grateful for it. Yeah, like the, the New York Magazine person was like, Brandon, Brandon starts crying immediately after he's <laughs> but, but it's it's true. It's like, you know, it, it was a, um, it was quite a gift in my life and it remains a, a, quite a gift and I'm I'm very grateful for it. I wonder though, like, Empathy, philanthropy are the two big words that stick out for me. So was Brandon Stanton at 21 as empathetic or did he, did he value empathy back then the way you value empathy well, now? Was, and You know, I was lost, you know, I was a gangly, you know, 180 pounds, six foot four kid, six, you know, whatever, like, uh, you know, there's a part of it, you know, who's a nice person, but you're trying to be cool. You're trying to be like this person. You're trying to, you know, be like that person. Um, so I don't think I really knew what I was, but yeah, there was a very sensitive person in there. And I think because there was such a sensitive person in there, you know, a lot of times those people are the people who try to create an image for themselves or try to be cool or jaded or laid back. And, you know, I think there's some of that in there. Um, I don't know. 
I don't know. Being around New Yorkers, you know, the, the vibe is you do you, be yourself, be utterly yourself, that's New York. Has being around all those people who are so often utterly themselves made it so you're able to be more utterly yourself? Hmm. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a hard one to to answer. I mean, the I think just because the 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 breadth of people that I interviewed were so like the people who were actually as like time went on I started to kind of gravitate less towards the people who were self-expressive and I took more pride in finding the quiet unassuming person and pulling out the singular story from them it's like oh this person might just blend in but listen to what they've been through I found that like the quietest interviews were often the best ones. You know, the people who had their, their story like architected already and they were already, and they knew exactly what to say, as opposed to the people who were kind of digging and asking for the first time and being kind of quiet and kind of thoughtful. Like those were, the quiet interviews were, you know, were some of, some of my favorites. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know if I would, I would say that, you know, it was the, the main, you know, common denominator were people who were very comfortable being themselves. As time went on, it, you know, there was uh, a lot of insecurity. It was every type of person. Um, yeah. If I were you, it's funny, we were, in, we were getting to know each other before the show and we were swapping stories and he started interviewing me and I told him everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> if I were you and I approached you to do exactly what you do with your subjects. I don't know if this is akin to like tickling yourself and it wouldn't work, but what do you, what do you hope would be the takeaway from your story? Well, it, it depends upon, you know, when, I, when I go to colleges, you know, I, 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 I think the valuable story about Humans of New York is, is it was it was it was based on the activity itself whereas in social media has gamified us all so much to judging ourselves through likes or followers or i'm going to have and that's like very unsustainable and very unhealthy that success equals this many people following um and really my my place of return was always success is doing what I want to be doing all day long, like the activity and the moment. And even with all of this stuff that's built up around it, you know, the book sales and, and all of that, you still like the most enjoyable part of it for me is that I'm able to create and have this very, this life where I'm meeting all of these wonderful people and helping them share their stories. It's the activity itself. Um, and, you know, kind of rooting, you know, rooting people in that. It's that, you know, the it's like not everybody can have a million followers and nobody or best-selling books or this or that but it's like that's not the thing that I was looking for the thing I was looking for was to somehow create a life where I could control my time and do what I wanted to do and like that's something that I think is attainable to everyone um, again if you don't wait for the perfect idea like I always said don't wait for perfect um, you know, if I had waited for the idea of Humans of New York, I would have never created Humans of New York. I just committed myself to finding out a way to do what I loved. And that was kind of the solid foundation that all the other innovations were built on that eventually became something so big.
when I first found out that you and I would be talking, one of the first questions that like zapped into my head was that so many of us, I think, inherently want to make the world a better place by being in it, right? Leave it better than we found it. And um, everybody has resources to do that. Some people have money. Some people have great interview skills. Some people have a car to get around. Some people can play the pipe organ beautifully. And um, I wonder about how we have, have and build a relationship with satisfaction, right? Like at the end of the day, when you put your head down on the pillow, we might take that moment to reflect and then ask ourselves, are we doing enough? Am I doing enough? Am I giving more than, I've, than I'm taking? And you've used your resources as a photographer, as, as a fundraiser, as a listener, to make people feel less alone, to make us feel more connected to our fellow human beings. The money you've raised has changed life after life after life. And so when you put your head down on the pillow at night and you take the moment to consider, have I done enough? Am I giving more than I'm taking? What kind of thoughts do you have? Um, I just, I, I, the key to my psychology, I think, is gratitude. I am just constantly in a place where I try to be thankful for what I have um, and what I've been given instead of needing things from the future or you're needing to do things in the future. I mean, that's, it's, it's a constant battle, but that's always centered me. Um, and, you know, I, before, so this has been the most crazy ride ever. Uh, but I remember before I even started Humans of New York, I went to New Orleans for a week with my camera and I just stopped random people and I took their photographs and I had the greatest week of my life. I was broke and I was about to lose my job. I had the greatest week of my life. And I remember on the plane back home being just so thankful, just being like, you know, I, I could really die right now and I just had the best life and it was all still in front of me. Everything that was supposed to happen to me in my life was still in front of me. But, you know, I just... The, I just had such a joyful week and I just looking and it's just like I've tried to keep that mindset you know all the way looking forward to just like really sit and think about all the good things in my life all the good things that have happened and whether it's God whatever you believe in the and just be thankful you know just be thankful that's the only really th thing I know how to do is just try to be thankful. Uh, and that's what's kept me centered. If you could plug a USB into your head and be doing a completely different job, what would it be? I mean, this is too long for the last two minutes. No, we, we got this. I got all that. I mean, We're sleeping a, over. Well, you know, I'm in, I'm in a period of, I think somebody asked Elton John, I don't know, somebody quoted this, this might be a fake quote, like uh, Abraham Lincoln quotes, like half of Abraham Lincoln quotes Abraham Lincoln didn't say. Um, yeah. Somebody told me that, hey, you know, Abraham Lincoln said, or Abraham Lincoln, Elton John, uh, somebody asked him why he was retiring, like, don't you still love playing piano? And he goes, yeah, I, I love it, I just don't want to do it anymore. Um, 
Yeah. And you know, I I I've had this moment, this time period with Humans of New York, where I've been doing it for so long. Like it's every story is like a great puzzle, but I know exactly what I'm doing. Um, but I had an opportunity recently to um, start a business with somebody, um, and just too long didn't read just in the story it's like i went way for like two months like i was like in that mindset because i always said like i would have loved to and there's some entrepreneurship in humans of new york but i would love to build build something build a company and i was doing it for two months and it kind of like took me away from my work from humans of new york and then for various reasons it didn't happen um that's the that's the story but that's a different time it's a netflix series uh various reasons it just it didn't happen um and i'd stepped away from uh you know humans of new york for like i was giving it maybe like 20 percent of my time and uh it solidified in, in my mind that you know like it, it was fun but how precious of a thing i had um so you know I, I got to i got to play that role for two months and it was really fun and really exciting but it wasn't this uh and so i think i've, I've scratched that itch and i no longer need to plug in that usb because i always wondered myself uh, and I think now I can I can definitively say that uh, you know I like Elton John. I just want to keep playing this piano uh, until the end. Yeah. A round of applause for Brandon Stanton. Thank you. Audacious is lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin D. Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Special thanks this week to Jamie Daniel and the whole crew at the Connecticut Forum and at the Bushnell Performing Arts Center. You can find out more about the forum and see pictures from my chat with Brandon by Nick Cato at ctpublic.org slash audacious. Subscribe to Audacious and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows featuring things like what happens when you call the number on the bottom of those I Love You Jesus billboards, stories from the Missed Connections section on Craigslist, and how 20 people define forgiveness and what they all have in common. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, or send me an email at audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks. For listening.